Uh, I heard a touching story this past week uh, about a high school student undergoing treatment for B-cell lymphoma and uh, an L.A. area NBA star reaching out through the Make-A-Wish Foundation. Uh, California resident Jimmy Butler, who plays for the Minnesota Timberwolves, uh, answered this young man's requests. This young man requested that, um, uh, effectively, they're saying, before I die, I would like to have the experience of meeting my hero. And so Jimmy Butler flew him out to California and hung out at his mansion, played basketball with him, took him around, showed him all sorts of things. They played paintball together. It was really sweet. You know, it's, when you think about the sacrifice of time and effort that goes into that, and I was impressed mostly with Jimmy Butler's candid questioning. He said to the young man, what are you most afraid of? And surprisingly, this junior in high school said to him, I'm most afraid of death. You don't see many people be that honest about fearing death. Uh, through the ages, men have tried to be brave in the face of death and downplay its finality. Uh, Socrates famously stated, death may be the greatest gift of all human blessings. Really? The Roman emperor Marcus Aurelius said, it is not death that a man should fear, but he should fear never beginning to live. That sounds nice and philosophical, and it certainly encourages us to make the most of each day. Carpe diem. But it ignores the reality and the finality of death. More recently, the late rapper and actor Tupac Shakur boasted, I don't have no fear for death. My only fear is coming back reincarnated. Now, given that he was sadly shot to death at age 25, his fans wish he'd had a greater fear of dying, and perhaps he'd been more alert to the dangers around him. Fear of death is normal. It's actually healthy. It'd be like the fear of walking on the freeway. It's not impressive for a person to say in their own strength, I don't fear death. Particularly when you think about, think about the realities of the gospel, that we are a sinful people and the God we will face is a holy God. We continue our study of John's gospel with an eye to Jesus' promise for his followers of eternal life, and very practically, uh, a look for us at his clear claim of deity and the implications for our prayer lives. I, I want to start by reading a section of the text from this morning from John chapter 8, verses 48 through 51, and this is the first paragraph of their response to Jesus telling them that Satan was their father. The Jews answered him in verse 48, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word... He will never see death. The last paragraphs of John chapter 8 focus on Jesus' claims about himself and the visceral opposition to those claims. Biblical scholars can't agree which would be a greater insult hurled at Jesus by the Jews, that he was demon-possessed or that he was a Samaritan. 
the equivalence of these two insults in the minds of Jesus' accusers should give you some insight into their prejudice, their palpable hatred for non-Jews, the charge of demonic influence from them to Jesus has a lot to do with what I'd mentioned in verse 44 of our previous section of John chapter 8. Jesus said to them, quote, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Now, if you missed Jeff Shaw's message last week, I encourage you to listen to it on our website or through the iTunes podcast, which if you didn't know, you can go on your phone through your podcast. You can subscribe to the Prism Church Sermons actually hit an auto-download. They'll download to your phone for you. No effort required on your part other than listening. These are, this was a great message on what Jesus was intending to communicate, the good news and the bad news of the gospel. Jesus, is pro- Jesus promised here that we'll never see death. And it should be understand that what he's saying is not the experience of physical death. We will all die unless you happen to be one of the lucky ones who is present when Jesus returns and consummates history. Short of that, we're all going to experience the passing from from physical life to physical death. What Jesus is saying is that we need not fear it. Jesus promised eternal life to believers, that there is life on the other side of this physical life. His opponents again misunderstood what he was saying, He wasn't saying we're not going to die physically, nor does he say we should look forward to it. I mean, that's kind of sick. Instead, by raising, rising from the dead, Jesus confirmed the reality of life after death. And that's why the Apostle Paul spoke of death like, well, an insect or a serpent with no capacity to sting. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 55-57 through 57 says, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Pray for my sister this morning. Imagine death like a spider with no venom. Well, eh, it can nip at you, but it has no potential to kill you. It has no potential to ruin you. It has no potential to cause damage to you. The overarching theme of the last section of John 8 is Jesus' clear affirmation of his deity. It's important to note that in each, gen- each generation of the church, there are cults who veer off the doctrinal path usually in the name of discovering real truth, the real truth about Christianity, as opposed to the codified apostolic truth that's contained in the Scriptures. In the 3rd century and 4th century, the Arian heresy is what dominated the church landscape. This was the belief that Jesus was not divine. He was simply all human, just really, really good guy. Uh, in the 20th century, it was the, and continuing into the 21st, it was the Jehovah's Witnesses. They're the same cult, just different millennium. It's saying Jesus isn't God. Jesus doesn't need to be God. That's silly to think about somebody who's a human being having a divine nature. And so often is the case, 
the ultimate dividing line in theological and religious discourse becomes whether a person will take Jesus at his word or not, or whether a person will take the scriptures as the word of God. And as a footnote, Jehovah's Witnesses actually alter John chapter 1 to make their case that Jesus is not God in the flesh. So this is the common practice of cults. They'll take you away from doctrinal orthodoxy from the scriptures so that they can actually get you to believe something that they think is going to actually help you, which is why we as a gospel-centered church create community around the Word of God, the truth of Scripture. It's the final authority for faith and practice as far as we're concerned. The late R.C. Sproul wrote at the conclusion of his study in John chapter 8, Disciples of Christ abide in His Word. Those who abide in His Word know the truth and are free. By contrast, the unregenerate are in bondage to sin and desire to do Satan's wishes. These stark contrasts emerge from this debate between Jesus and the Pharisees. This is what we're seeing in John chapter 8. So why is it important for Christians to believe in the divinity of Jesus? Every now and again, I'll get in a discussion with somebody and say, you know, what's the big deal? Well, there are at least two big deals, two big reasons why Christians maintain that Jesus had to be divine, that Jesus was who he said he was in the scriptures, God in the flesh. And the first is this, his divinity assures us that our debt has been paid. His divinity is what assures us that the debt of sin we owed has been paid. Let me unpack verses 54 through 56 for you. Jesus answered these Pharisees, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you've not known Him. I know Him. If I were to say that I do not know Him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. It was this last statement that was the straw that was breaking the Pharisees' back, so to speak. They were the ones that were opposed to Jesus. And and in many ways, Jesus was digging a deeper and deeper hole which he knew he wasn't going to get out of because he was going to die for the sins of the world, but he kept pressing them. And so now he is using the patriarch, Abraham, and saying something akin to, Abraham knew who I was. Now, in one sense, I have historically thought of this passage this way. There's not a lot of scholars, and I'll get to what they think it actually is saying, but in fact, Jesus, if divine, if pre-existent before he was born in around the, now the days are all changed around before the common era, zero, zero, December 25th, zero, 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 zero. No, it's not like black to the future. Jesus, before he was born, if he existed in all of eternity, by then Abraham had already passed on and been to heaven. So I'd always read this that somehow or another Abraham and Jesus had had some conversation before Jesus had come. Scholars 
believe that what Jesus is talking about here, actually, is that Abraham, through his rejoicing of his son and what his son came to symbolize for the nation of Israel, that he saw Jesus' day coming. In verse 56, it's a bold statement by Jesus. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. It's bold because of who he sang it to. These are people that almost worshipped the patriarchs. And it's also bold because what it says about Jesus if it isn't true. See, this is a crystal clear declaration by the Lord that he was the fulfillment of Old Testament symbolism. Scholars believe Jesus is referencing Abraham's rejoicing over the birth of his son, Isaac. Isaac was born miraculously to Abraham and Sarah in their old age. A promised son that would become the gateway to a people that would be as numerous as stars in the sky. Abraham would also have an episode where he was willing to sacrifice his son Isaac to God. And through Abraham and Isaac, we have a foreshadowing of the miraculous birth of Jesus uh, and the ultimate substitution of God's only Son for us as an atoning sacrifice. Jesus said that Abraham saw the Messiah's fulfillment of prophecy as the Lamb of God. We look to the book of Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews brings all of this into focus for us in terms of the purpose of the lamb, the purpose of the sacrifice. In Hebrews chapter 9, verses 24 through 28, it says, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have to have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of ages to put away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Jesus... His divinity is required if he's going to be somebody who is sacrificing himself for the sins of the world. An atoning sacrifice has to be innocent for substitution to occur. The one being sacrificed has to be without sin. In the case of the sins of everyone who would ever believe throughout all of time, the one being sacrificed would have to be infinitely more valuable than the sum of all their lives. And only Jesus Christ, who was by nature divine, could fulfill that calling. It's His divinity that assures us that our sins have been paid in full. It's more than satisfied the redeeming cost of our sins. The Make-A-Wish Foundation is a fascinating organization. Uh, the the dying child effectively gets a dream to come true. So in my case, if I was a child, because they don't let 53-year-olds be part of the Make-A-Wish Foundation, but if I was 17 and I had an illness, I would say, I would like to meet Bono from U2 and have dinner with him 
and go to a concert, and then after the concert, sit around and talk with him about global politics, about how we're going to solve racism and the AIDS crisis around the world. I, I want to, that's my dream. And, and if the Make-A-Wish Foundation called back and said, well, listen, Chuck, uh, we're very sorry for the disease that you have, but Bono's unavailable. But we do have a young man named Greg who is part of a garage band at Pasadena High School, and he'd be more than happy to spend some time with you. That wouldn't do the trick. That wouldn't be sufficient to fulfill my make-a-wish dream. You, You couldn't have Greg go to the UN and speak to them about the global AIDS crisis like Bono did. Greg doesn't have the gravitas to do that. He doesn't have the influence to do that. He, he doesn't have what's necessary to make the need be met. The Make-A-Wish Foundation only is effective if people's actual wishes get met. And it's the same way, the reason Jesus' divinity is important, <laughs> critical, is because only Jesus could satisfy the debt of sin that we owe. Only the divine is holy enough to be sacrificed for the unholy. Only the divine is valuable enough to be sufficiently paying for the sins of countless believers throughout all eternity. John eleven twenty five and 26 shows us again that Jesus' divinity assures us that our debt has been paid. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. While we no longer fear death, it isn't something we celebrate, but physical death is just the means of coming to a place of understanding how much God loves us because He purchased our salvation through Christ's death. Believers will physically die, but because of Jesus' resurrection, we know that the other side exists and we know that we will be safely in His presence. The divinity of Christ is critical for us to know that our debt of sin has been paid. Here's the second thing that the divinity of Christ is critical for and why it's not a small thing. His divinity assures us that He can answer our prayers. His divinity assures us that He has the authority to be able to, when you request of Him, Lord, heal my sister, work in my friend's life, bring my child to faith, that He actually has the authority to do something about that. It says in verses 57-59, through 59, the Jews said to Him, you are not yet 50 years old and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was... I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Why were Jesus' words, I am, so incendiary? People that had been angry with him, had threatened him, but they went right to execution, picked up stones, and they were going to stone a blasphemer. It struck a deep nerve within these Jewish leaders And their violent reaction 
is found in the fact that when Jesus said, I am, He was actually using the divine name by which God had revealed Himself to Moses at the burning bush on Mount Sinai. This is the place where Moses received his calling to free the Israelites from Egypt and where eventually the Ten Commandments were given. And when Moses inquired of God, what am I supposed to say to these people? I'm a nobody. I'm going to come to them and tell them I'm the deliverer. Well, we read in Exodus chapter 3, verses 13-14, through 14, Moses came to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. When Jesus says, to them, to the Pharisees, before Abraham was, I am. He wasn't saying I was, he was making a claim to divinity. So clear was his declaration of pre-existence and superiority over Abraham and his divinity that the Jews were compelled to stone the indisputable public blasphemer. As we've mentioned previous in this study, Previously, Jesus was not afraid of death in the same way we don't fear death. In the sense, we, Jesus wasn't looking forward to his physical death. He, he grieved over the emotional and the physical pain that his suffering was going to cause him. But he didn't fear because he knew on the other side of this, there was a joy set before him. He knew, though, in this context that his timing hadn't arrived. Jesus, as we've studied previously, very specifically knew that his death had to take place during the Passover to fulfill the Old Testament requirement of a Passover lamb. So Jesus went away and his hiding wasn't cowardice, it was more evidence of his ultimate control of all things, including his own death. This divine sovereignty is the foundation for our confidence that He can answer our prayers. I'm going to talk about prayer considerably next week from Psalm 107 and John chapter 9. Uh, next Sunday, we'll deal with the subject of will He answer. Today, as we touch on prayer, the, the first part of that, which is easier for me to grasp, is can He answer? And the reason I know He can answer is because of who Jesus is. Jesus' declaration of pre-existence, existing before Abraham, being I am, is meaningful because logically it means He is God. He's, he was willing to come and rescue us. He was faithful to His promises. But it does show us most importantly, that he does have the authority to change our world. Jesus, divine. The scriptures say in Psalm 107, verses 33 through 35 of God, he turns rivers into a desert, springs of water into thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salty waste because of the evil of its inhabitants. He turns a desert into pools of water and parched land into springs of water. These are great descriptions, particularly for people that live in an arid climate. 
as we're dealing with 100 degree temperatures and 0% humidity and no moisture anywhere to be found here in the Southland. We remember that the Scriptures say none of that is an inhibitor. None of that impedes God's progress. If He wants rain in this area, we're going to have rain. If He wants rain out in the Mojave, we're going to have rain. In Death Valley, if He wants it cold, it's going to be cold. God is ultimately the one in charge. With Jesus being divine, we know when we speak to our Savior, we are effectively going to receive an answer. Next week, we'll spend a bit of time praying through Psalm 107, so I encourage you to read it this week. But as far as our prayer life is concerned, we have supreme confidence Jesus can answer our prayers because of who He is. If Jesus isn't God in the flesh, if He didn't resurrect from the grave, if He didn't ascend to the throne and be coronated King of kings and Lord of lords, then we are just wishing for things. We're not asking the sovereign of the universe to do something for us. However, if the word of God be true, if Jesus be who he clearly claimed to be, so much so that they wouldn't have tried to stone him if he wasn't really saying that's who he was, we're not nearly, merely making a wish. We are praying to a Savior who is seated at the right hand of the Father, and by his own declaration has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. So, beginning now and continuing through next week, let us have confidence that he hears us and let's go before his throne. Let's pray.